ideas are truly fragile and they can get snuffed out even by the people that are most well-placed and have the best reputation. They may even snuff out their best ideas. One of the greatest idea generators or one of the greatest individuals to pull ideas out of brains and to make them into mass consumer projects, uh, technological products that change the world, uh, even snuffed out, almost snuffed out one of his greatest ideas. He wanted uh, the iPhone initially to just be like a souped up iPod. So like literally with that dial, do you remember that dial you had on the first iPod, that circular thing? That's what he wanted. And I, listen, if Steve Jobs almost snuffed out the iPhone, like don't stress that you're self-critical of your own like essay you're writing tomorrow, like a tweet you're making, right? That's how I think about it. Like sometimes I'll be oh, nobody's gonna like that. It's like, it's a freaking tweet, like get over it, right? Like uh, don't snuff, you don't have to necessarily snuff it out. Um, now give it a chance. Uh, welcome to another episode of Not Investment Advice. It's Trung and Bilal here. Trung, we got a special episode for people today. Yes, sir. Why don't you explain what your idea was for this single topic iPhone special? Yeah, so uh, I'm going, I, I was inspired and spoke to our friend David Senra from the Founders Podcast, a legendary podcast. Uh, also inspired by the guys that acquired Ben and David. Uh, uh, earlier this year, I wanted to do similar to them where they go one deep on one topic and i gotta say they are very good at their jobs <laughs> because yeah. my idea was just to look at individual products because david does uh founders uh ben and uh, david do companies at acquired i'm like what if i just did products i did a yeah. single deep dive every week or every two weeks on a single product um Turns out it's quite hard to read a single book, take notes, and then riff on it for 90 minutes to uh, two hours. Uh, so the acquired guys do closer to three, four hours now. But uh, David, our buddy, uh, does one book a week, and then he does an hour-long-ish episode. And it's hard, man. I Incredible. respect the shit out of those guys. Mad respect. But um, yeah, I, I trialed. I did one on the iPhone. It's great. I listened to it. the lead here. It was great, yeah. yeah. But, but all you had a chance to listen to it. Uh, You're about did, to did listen you, to it in a second. Did you feel the deep diveness no, of I, it? No, 100%. Well, the, what I was going to say is there were lots of things in there about the story of the iPhone that I didn't know. And I felt like I knew a decent amount about the iPhone. I don't know if we are able... Should we tease a cup? I mean, I, I've just got one or two that yeah, I tell what you remember. Liked. So Steve Jobs thought calls would be the killer app. The yeah, iPhone. the phone calls. He hated uh, mobile calls. phone calls. And he's like, and look at this contact book. Look how cool it is that I'm flipping through a contact book. That's ridiculous. Book, right? Yeah. Well, and I he, mean, at the time, it made a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the time, and that's the thing. Now, in hindsight, you're like, what? Well, obviously, the apps and all the stuff that he came didn't even after, want an app store. He didn't even he want an app store. Exactly. And to your point, he didn't want an app store because he was afraid that the third party apps would crash the phone, which would ruin a call. And exactly. he's like, if somebody crashes the phone during an emergency call, we're in trouble. So, like, this is how they thought in 2007, right? When they launched in January yeah. 2007. So, yeah, really, that was one thing. And then also the fact that the name iPhone, there was a company. Yeah, uh, that already used the name iPhone previously, and there was a whole story there which you There's go into. There's a whole legal well. thing involved. And the summary I would say is just that these products that we think of are made by lots of people, not just one person. Yeah. If you ask the person on the street who made it, you would say Steve Jobs. But in this case, there's so many other unsung heroes, people part of the team that you go into that detail, which I thought was really cool. Which Bilal actually knows somebody mentioned, uh, or or uh, knows has a friend whose uncle is mentioned. We're yeah, not one of my best friends, Asif Chowdhury. His uncle is Imran Chowdhury, which is one of the original OG Apple dudes. He's a Pakistani British guy like me, so never spoken to him. But I think Man, he might have been at the wedding. I went yeah. to uh, for Asif's wedding, but yeah shout out to him and uh really cool just to hear like him johnny ive 
yeah. you know, all the early people at Apple getting in the minds of that. So I think there's definitely something here. Let us know what you think of this. It is an experimental episode for Trung. And, I just uh, have one note is uh, before we get into the episode, uh, it is about the iPhone. It's based on the one device by Brian Merchant. The one thing I will add is uh, I made a, uh, a mistake at the beginning. I attributed uh, something that Joni Ive said about Steve Jobs to uh, when he spoke at uh, Steve Jobs' funeral. Uh, uh, he said similar things, but the exact text of what was said was actually from an op-ed that he wrote in the Wall Street Journal got it, on the 10-year anniversary of uh, Steve Jobs' passing. But the similar ideas were shared, and that's how I crossed them. I was actually nice. going to use the script app to fix it, but I never got around to it. There we go. But, well, uh, we can uh, see if Rafa can work his magic there. But anyway, definitely great work. I know how much goes into it as a fellow podcaster, obviously, but I've never done a single-person episode like that. I've thought about doing like a one-person speaking about stuff, but not like you guys have done it. But I know this is like, you know, 20, 30 hours like of yeah. prep research. You know what? If people like, it. and I'll be honest, if people like it, I'll, I'll be more motivated to go. Because I have a bunch of other ones I was going to do, single product ideas. But uh, we'll see. We'll see how Let it goes. Let us know what you think of it. And uh, you can share in the comments or in Telegram. Let us know what you think or Twitter. Uh, but yeah, great job, Trunk. I think it was really cool. I learned a lot from it. So we'll get straight into the show right now. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. Well, today we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough internet communicator device. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device and we're calling it the iPhone. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. I'm sure many of you listeners have heard or watched that. I literally just rewatched this January 2007 keynote, uh, Steve Jobs, Apple, when they announced uh, the iPhone. It wouldn't ship for another six months, but that's obviously the topic of this episode, uh, the first episode of this series. And the reason why I picked the iPhone is because literally every single person has one. You're probably listening to this on an iPhone right now. If not, sorry for the green check marks. And the other part that I wanted to bring together was I found this book, The One Device by Brian Merchant. It really kind of captured what I wanted to do with this podcast. It's the idea that there are these inventions, these products, uh, any idea that becomes reality, right? It could be a phone. In a couple of weeks, we'll do like a hot sauce or a week after that, we'll do like a book or a film, how an idea comes to life. And I think there are a couple of things with the one device, the book and the story of the iPhone, which are very relevant to any future episode I will do for this podcast. And I'll kind of run through a few of them. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the idea of the convergence of technology. Well, the reality is most things don't just come out of the blue. As in the overnight kind of explosion of the iPhone was built on top of smartphone technology um, over the past the previous decade, uh, cellular technology, um, you're talking like the GPS technology and uh, the, the uh, ARM chips, everything that was invented in the lead up uh, uh, kind of creates what Merchant calls in the book, a, a convergence technology. The other part that I want to talk about on top of technologies converging and coming together on top of previous technology or any idea that comes to life built on previous ideas is the, is the fact that these are not singular achievements. And by that, I mean by an individual. Like if you were to ask somebody, oh, who invented the iPhone? Like 
for people that aren't in like the news flow of super techie, um, kind of tech Twitter, the world that I obviously live in, they're probably gonna say Steve Jobs. And then you kind of open, uh, if you tighten that circle a bit into like more technology, like, oh yeah, Sir Joni Ive. Uh, uh, he he designed a lot of cool stuff at Apple, industrial design, that whole thing. And then you go a little bit closer into the tech world, you'll get people like Scott Forstall, uh, the, who did the software for iOS. And then you have Tony Fidel, uh, who famously is known as the pod father for his work on the iPod. Um, but the reality is that I think the majority of people of the uh, 2 billion iPhones that have ever been sold, so chew on that number for a second, I think the majority of them would be like, if you were to ask, is like, who invented the iPhone? They say Steve Jobs. But but the reality was that the iPhone was the inv- the creation of all this previous technology uh, that converged, as I mentioned, for point one. But also, it's like a crack team of like 30, 40, really secretive, uh, small team within Apple that kind of brought the, primarily, it started with multi-touch. That was where they started to find, uh, here's a cool technology we have, a new way for people to interact with computing devices but where can we match a TAM with that, like a total addressable market? So we'll get to it and you'll you have a laugh, but Apple marketing, uh, this is in the early 2000s when they were kind of presented with this multi-touch technology that we're so used to now, but two decades ago was still real, real jaggy. They're like, yeah, we'll uh, we'll give it to real estate agents to sell homes. Like that was like the master plan that Apple marketing had. And uh, so that's the second part is like many people involved in the creation of these kind of iconic products but as I mentioned, we'll be doing consumer products, we'll be doing electronics, we'll be doing books, movies, the whole nine of bringing ideas to life. Uh, the third part that I wanted to touch on and I thought was extremely relevant to the idea of bringing ideas to life is how hard it is to do. So I'll actually give you this quote uh, uh, from Joni, Sir Joni Ive, the head of design at Apple for many years. Uh, uh, famous, uh, he also has a really good book. I'd read that biography. But he said this at uh, Steve's uh, funeral, Steve Jobs' funeral. Steve Jobs passed away in the fall of uh, 2011. And Steve had said, uh, I think I'm going to butcher this quote because I actually didn't write it down in these notes here. I got notes in front of me. You know, I'm trying to deliver here. He had said that they, they were kind of soulmates uh, in, in terms of their approach to technology and design. This is what uh, Joni Ive said about Steve. So this is kind of actually the real genesis of this podcast. So Joni Ive uh, at Steve Jobs' funeral says, as thoughts grew into ideas, however fragile, Steve recognized that this was hallowed ground. He had such a deep understanding and reverence for the creative process. He understood creating should be afforded rare respect, not only when the ideas were good or the circumstances convenient. Ideas are fragile. If they were resolved, they would not be ideas. They would be products. It takes determined effort not to be consumed by the problem of an idea. Problems are easy to articulate and understand, and they take the oxygen. Steve focused on the actual idea, however partial or unlikely. So what's funny about this quote is obviously Joe, Sir Joni Ive would know if Steve believed that. And I think with if you look at the track record uh, that Steve Jobs was able to bring to life with Apple, particularly when he came back in 1997, I mean, the run was greatest corporate run ever. Uh, comes back in 97, re-releases uh or does a new version of the iMac with uh, the color candies, and then uh, does iPod 2001. So 97, 2001 is the iPod. The iPhone is 2007. Uh, iPad, I think, is 2000, uh, 2009 or 2010. And uh, I mean, and the iPhone is the greatest consumer product ever, right? Like, I, I'm going to mention these numbers a million times. They've sold over a trillion dollars of iPhones 
And that works out to 2 billion units, over 2 billion units sold. Embarrassingly, I didn't even get my first iPhone until like 2012. I'm a total, total laggard and uh, a little bit of a Luddite if I'm being honest with myself. I'm not like smashing the machine, but like boomerish. Um, but the whole point, the reason why I bring up that the amazing Joni Ive quote about the fragility of ideas is that Steve actually, Steve Jobs in development of the iPhone, there are like four or five places where he like almost snuffed the idea out. And it's weird because jo Sir Joni Ive is talking about how, how hallowed uh, uh, the, the the process that Steve assigns to new ideas, but he's also I mean a vicious editor. An editor, I mean like vicious in a good way. Like he's ruthless in editing, right? Uh, uh, he famously um, uh, teaches uh, Picasso's bull. It's this picture of uh, twelve uh, 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 bull prints. That each bull goes from like a real picture into the lines, and by the end, the whole point that Picasso is trying to say is that like you edit something from kind of this big blob into something that is the essence of that item uh, uh, you take away. And then Steve Jobs also famously said, innovation is saying no a thousand times. So like he was saying no a lot during like the iPhone process and, and all the steps it took to that. I'll, I'll just hit you guys off the top of the head of some of the things that uh, Steve um, expressed skepticism of uh, before turning around, but he did uh, express skepticism. And Joni Ive even says, uh, or is quoted in this book, of basically saying he was afraid to bring Steve and an an idea for a demo because demos are how Apple runs. Like take Amazon for example. Amazon's known as a writing culture. They're known for the six-page memos where you have to read six pages by somebody that's uh, uh, pitching a product. If everybody in the meeting has to be on the same page after they read quietly for the first fifteen minutes. Uh, I, I just imagine I have this visual in my head of just Bezos looking at everyone, making sure they're reading. Somebody's flipping their pages too fast. He's like taking notes. But uh, the equivalent for Apple is a demo. And the demo was when they brought the, uh, uh, in another book by uh, uh, Ken Cosienda, I might be getting the name wrong, he wrote a book called Creative Selection. I'm definitely going to do another episode of that. Uh, my buddy David Senra has done a number of episodes uh, for that, speaking specifically to Apple's process. But he said the demo is when you bring the intangible to the tangible. And Steve was ruthless in these demos. Like, if you're bringing something to an Apple demo, like, that's not a speculative feature. If you brought something to Steve in a demo, you better be ready to ship that, right? And I mean, Steve Jobs said, real artists ship. It's like, you can't just bring something, hey, Steve, like, here's a button, uh, but uh, we haven't worked out uh, the, the, the software angle of it. Well, we think it could work if this technology changes next to you. No, no, you bring Steve something, it better be shippable or in, in due time. So Tony Ive was talking about how he was afraid to bring to Steve some ideas that didn't look ship ready because Steve would just destroy the idea and that was it, right? The individual that, uh, the designer or the UX individual, the software engineer would bring this idea to Steve and he just shit all over it. And that was kind of the end of that. So we've kind of cut and lost my space here, but I'll just run through some of the stuff that Steve, according to the one device by Brian Merchant, uh, kind of killed or almost killed at certain points. So, so number one was he didn't like multi-touch. Uh, uh, to his credit, when he first saw it, it was a little bit sloppy, right? Like it was done uh, on a kind of a big screen with some paper involved. It wasn't like how we know multi-touch to be. It wasn't like super refined. So the first time he saw it, he was like not crazy about it, uh, but then eventually turned around. I mean, this is the thing you hear about Steve all the time. He has incredible taste and and he doesn't get 100% of the time, gets it right. I've seen somebody say like 90, 95% of the time, he'll get it right. And when he doesn't get it right, he gets it's a pretty big whiff. Uh, but the point is 
you bring something to Steve, he, like, he might shit on it, but he'll also be capable of turning his ideas. Like, he's just noodling on it. He's thinking about it. He's like the ultimate editor or Apple. They call it the, the decider. And uh, uh, obviously, risky as a company building uh, maneuver because Steve Jobs passed away in 2011. Uh, uh, Joni, uh, Sir Joni Ave left in 2019, and now they're kind of doing design by committee. And if you don't have that individual super duper taste, uh, it could be obviously uh, not the greatest. Like if you had me as a decider at Apple, you would not be happy with the products that were coming out, right? Uh, although I think one thing I would do for sure is just like 100-hour battery life. I don't know how that's going to happen, but we should figure that out. So uh, he didn't like the multi-touch. Uh, he also, his initial, if you watch that presentation from 2007, his initial idea of what iPhone was, was the killer app, he says, is making phone calls. Like he spends like 10 minutes showing the contact list and like how you can pick voicemails and like those are the innovations. So he, obviously, they mentioned the internet communicator, but that to him wasn't like the killer app, right? And then this comes to the next part. He didn't want an app store because he wanted the killer app to be the phone calls. And he was so worried about, third-party apps crashing the system or crashing the phone and, and worried about the bad PR blowback of like, you know, let's say you're trying to make a 911 call, but then like your farting app is like taking down the entire phone, right? Like that's what Steve was worried about. And, and, uh, and the, well, the other, the, I'll add one more, but just give you an idea of how ideas are fragile. And one of the greatest idea generators or one of the greatest individuals to pull ideas out of brains and to make them into mass consumer projects, uh, technological products that change the world. Uh, we even snuffed out, almost snuffed out one of his greatest ideas. He wanted uh, the iPhone initially to just be like a souped up iPod. So like literally with that dial, do you remember that dial you had on the first iPod, that circular thing? That's what he wanted. So again, just to, con uh, to bring why I'm doing this podcast and and things I want to cover, and why I think any idea that I'm going to discuss will have these similarities. The convergence of technologies, it's not just a great man history of an individual doing it. There's many people involved, and an opportunity to kind of bring up those other stories, and then just the idea of like, ideas are truly fragile, and they can get snuffed out, even by the people that are most well-placed and have the best reputation. They may even snuff out their best ideas. And I, listen, if Steve Jobs almost snuffed out the iPhone, like, don't stress that you're self-critical of your own, like, essay you're writing tomorrow, like a tweet you're making, right? That's how I think about it. Like, sometimes I'll be, oh, nobody's going to like that. It's like, it's a freaking tweet. Like, get over it, right? Like, uh, don't snuff. You don't have to necessarily snuff it out. Um, you know, give it a chance. So uh, this book, uh, well, actually, the next part of this that we'll get to, well, the next part I have in my notes here, I think it's a good segue. So I've already mentioned a few times here, I think, why Apple is a great uh, first episode is uh, everybody knows about it. Um, Two million ship, over a trillion dollars sold. That's a lot of a lot of cheddar. It, so when the first iPhone was announced in 2007, the penetration, just get an idea how different the world is. In the US, a mobile or smart was uh, about 10%. So um, by the time I'm recording this, we're talking 90% now, right? And just how different the world has changed. So the, a couple other things that I, I really enjoyed from this book was this stat uh, that was pulled from a, a Apple and mobile analyst, Horace Adidiu. Horace, if you're listening, apologies if I butchered your name there. I'll be, unfortunately, butchering quite a few of the names in this presentation, I'm sure. But so Horace had a great list. I think he put this out in 2011, speaking to how successful, actually maybe 2016, speaking to how successful the iPhone is as a product. I've said the numbers ad nauseum. 
I'm going to spare you saying that one, one more time. But what I will say is this. So he compared the best-selling products ever. So Toyota Corolla, uh, they, they've had over 12 generations, 50 million cars, the best-selling car. Sony PlayStation, I had one. It was dope. Uh, 500 million sold, lifetime. The best-selling book ever is Harry Potter, the entire series, 500 million. That's actually crazy. Uh, the Rubik's Cube uh, sold 450 million. And, and, and then again, these are like the best-selling consumer products ever. I mean, I know one of you jokers would be, oh, what about Coca-Cola? They sell like a billion a day. Or like, you know, the Mike, McDonald's sign? A billion served. Okay, we're talking about like real products and like toy, like manufactured products, all right? Okay, come on, people. Um, so uh, Lipitor's up there too, and, I, and I'm sure of I <laughs> We're going to keep this particular episode PG. So the best-selling, I just listed you the best-selling products. And the iPhone is 2x the Rubik's Cube, 2x the PlayStation, 2x Harry Potter books. Think about that. Everybody's read Harry Potter and more people have bought the iPhone. All right, so we're going to roll through. The book kind of, uh, the book inter, uh, I'm just going to say this word wrong. It like injects the story of different technologies, right? Like the convergence technologies that I mentioned. So I'll just give you a list of things that uh, it kind of gets its own chapter in this book. Like the optical image stabilizer, GPS, the gyroscope, ARM, uh, which was the uh, design for uh, mobile semiconductors, uh, cloning glass, which is the glass, uh, the gorilla glass for your phone. So each of these kind of get like their own chapter in the book. And I get, the purpose of that is to show that uh, the iPhone was truly a convergence technology. Now, uh, I'm not going to go through each of those because, frankly, as I was doing it, that was my ambition. But I'm like, this is going to be a 20-hour podcast, and you might as well just get the audio book at that point. Uh, so I'm trying to keep this at a reasonable time, throw you guys some jokes, all right? Like entertainment and uh, insights. Education and entertainment, right? Right? Those are what we're striving for. That's the Venn diagram, but in a, in a consumable amount of time. You know, if you're listening to the 2X, you'll be done in 45 minutes. So that's what I'm going for. So that's why I'm not going to run through every single one of these items. Uh, but I'll, I'll mention them. But the other part that Brian Merchant does uh, in this book is those art chapters that I mentioned, uh, the different technologies that lay the foundation for Apple, the the actual story of the development, and uh, how, I kind of mentioned how Steve kept thinking of snuffing out the iPhone. That, that's where we're going to get to. That's the meat of it, people. All right? So... If we can do lots of episodes, there's only one, we, we can revisit some of these things. Okay, so let's start the story in 1997. Steve Jobs returns to Apple. Apple is struggling. Steve was pushed out in about 85, 86 from Apple. He, I guess, wasn't the best uh, executive at the time for the company. That was what the board thought. Uh, over the next decade, he acquired Pixar uh, and built it into a, an animation powerhouse. And he worked on Next Computing. Uh, which is also a, uh, a software-hardware combination he tried to to, to make work with oh, A&M getting acquired by Apple. And uh, Steve returned as interim CEO in 1997. So when Steve returned to Apple, uh, the Brian Merchant brings something up because it gives an idea of how the seed within Apple for the iPhone was not Steve Jobs. And, and this is what I talked about. It's other the involvement of other people. There's a group within Apple and we will refer to that group as ENRI, uh, that's E-N-R-I, and those letters uh, stand for Explore New Rich Interactions. So this is how Brian describes this group. So it's a small group of like designers, uh, engineers, uh, UX people, 
uh, hardware people. And they're basically trying to figure out what is the next way that individuals will interact with computers. I mean, in the year that we, in the 2020s, well, we know what computing has gone to, right? And we know the next wave is supposed to be AR, VR, which has also been talked about for decades. But at that time in 97, there's this group, ENRI. So again, explore new rich interactions. Uh, this group, uh, the meetings of this group were so discreet that not even Jobs knew they were taking place. The story of the iPhone starts, in other words, not with Steve Jobs or a grand plan to revolutionize phones, but with a misfit crew of software designers and hardware hackers tinkering with the next evolutionary step in human uh, computer symbiosis. So I actually think this is very important. You have to remember that uh, when Steve Jobs founded Apple in, in the mid-70s with Steve Wozniak, the point was to make computer more personal. And in the iPhone presentation, he said that the iPhone was the third kind of big breakthrough for Apple in this idea of making computing more personal. iMac in 1984, which was their desktop uh, with the famous Super Bowl ad of, of 1984, that ad, that was like, okay, computing is more personal now. It's in your house. It's on your desk. You can do creative stuff with it. But the second thing he said was with the music industry, 2001, the iPod. Uh, so now the computer, man, iPod's effectively a computer. It's in your pocket, right? And then the iPhone comes up, even more powerful computer in your pocket. And then now actually, if as you watch the, uh, the, the, the development of Apple's product line, the Apple Watch, the AirPods, these wearables, they're literally just making computer uh, and computing more personal. So that's what this Enry group was trying to accomplish. And um, th this is an interesting thing I said. So I, I might've been wrong about who was in this, uh, the Enry group. It sounds like... Uh, the more uh, primarily user interface. And uh, as we mentioned, Sir Johnny Ava a couple of times now already, he he was the industrial design group. So like melding hardware and software and making, you know, you know the, uh, so the Johnny Ava's famous, uh, kind of his first real breakthrough was the iMac, uh, the color candied iMac in the late 90s uh, when uh, Steve Jobs came back and kind of re-announced that Apple was a, a serious player again. But this Enry group, so they're a bunch of UI designers, user interface. And so this is a great line from uh, Brian Mercer. There was no Joni Ive of the, the of the user interface group. So uh, like when Joni Ive and industrial design group, they, they had the ear of Steve Jobs, like 100%. There's, a, there's another quote that Steve had, I think uh, long after the success of the iPhone, maybe called late 2009s, maybe early 2010s. He was basically saying that, Joni Ive was number two at the company, effectively. Like, no one had more operational decision-making than Joni Ive. That's the industrial design group. So the UI group did not have this kind of a same pull with Steve. But they're hacking away in the Enry group. Uh, but they did have something that's pretty funny. They had, a, a, again, I might butcher these names. Uh, they had an individual named Bass Ording and Imran Chaudhry. Um, they were called the Lennon and McCartney of UI. I got to say... Not bad, right? Lennon McCartney are hitters. So like, you might not be uh, Joni Ive with the industrial design group, but you're the Lennon McCartney of UI. Like, I, I can just imagine now, like you're hanging out in San Francisco or in California, you're at a bar and uh, you kind of poke over with your like, with the techie crews and then here's like, oh, those are the, that's Lennon. It's Lennon McCartney of UI. That's still pretty baller. You might not get the Sir Joni Ive vibe, but uh, I kind of like that. So they were thinking, uh, this Enry group of, okay, what is computing now in the early 2000s? Where have we taken it? The iPod took it to, hey, you're clicking along on the wheel. All right, this is quite personal. It's a new way to interact with computers. But what is next? 
and they, they touched on multi-touch. So the way they found kind of multi-touch was, uh, speaking of ideas and how ideas can get snuffed out, the the introduction of multi-touch, uh, the Apple actually acquired a company called Fingerworks. They kind of made this keyboard. Uh, it wasn't quite like we have with the iPad where you get the full multi-touch, but it was using uh, kind of a, it looks like a keyboard, but it's mapped out in a in a different material and you can still gesture on it uh, like you would with a, an iPod or an iPhone. But they kind of came across this because that uh, Fingerworks product, which is called uh, the NumPad, was meant for people that had like, uh, what's it called when you, you do something too much with one hand? Um, anyways, you know what I mean, right? It's like your hand, it gets crampy and, or, or maybe from a handicap standpoint too, some individuals just weren't able to use the full function out of their hands. This keyboard helped. And uh, apparently, investigation of multi-touch began because one of the Apple employees had purchased this product. Uh, her name was Tina Huang. Uh, she did it to relieve her wrist pain. So this product wouldn't even come across a radar for Apple and then the Enri group, uh, if not for uh, Tina Huang trying it out and seeing if it could help relieve her wrist pain. So multi-touch, which became the basis for the iPhone, it was kind of like by luck even showed up in Apple's offices. So the Enri group starts exploring multi-touch. And, and uh, I'll read to you what Brian Merchant writes here. One of the themes that kept coming up over and over again was a the theme of navigation. Key things like scrolling and zooming. If you want to zoom in on an image, you had to drag your cursor to a menu. This is with the old PC model. Click on it and then type the amount you want to enlarge. So multi-touch is obviously an improvement in terms of human computer symbiosis, right? So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, a couple of the details about this Fingerworks deal, which made this numpad kind of the precursor for multi-touch within Apple. And mind you, this is like the early 2000s. Multi-touch had been a problem that people were trying to solve in the 80s, uh, but technologies didn't catch up uh, fair enough. Takes time for these things, right? Convergence of technology, people. Convergence of technology theory. So uh, I'll give a shout out to another name here. Uh, I just have them underlined. So Steve Hotelling, it's a pretty good name. Uh, the head of the input group had to personally call up Fingerworks uh, to make the deal because apparently Apple lowballed them. Uh, it started from a licensing deal to an acquisition deal. And uh, again, this the Enri group now has go, gone from, oh, what's the next computing human symbiosis? You're like, oh, we think we have it. And uh, uh, Brian Merchant brings up a great point here. And if, I, if you hear convergence of technology theory or convergence theory a lot, it's because of things like this. So Apple and Steve, so Steve Jobs, in this particular instance, wasn't an individual that found this for Apple. Um, the Enri group was working on this. And remember, how did Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak initially find a lot of the ideas for personal computing? They found it when they visited in 1979, the Xerox Paul Alto Research Center, or famously known as Xerox Park. So within that Xerox uh, a park uh, a visit, they saw the graphic graphical user interface, the GUI. So that's like the one we all know today. It's like, yeah, or like uh, when, uh, you know what I mean? It's not the DOS like input thing, right? Uh, the icons, the menus, those were all, I'm doing quotations from the listeners here, borrowed from Xerox Park. And then like many years later, uh, in the 90s, uh, when Microsoft was a dominant computing uh, platform, him and Steve got into a lot of beef around uh, like licensing or and, and copyrights and trademarks. So Steve was basically saying that Microsoft 
was just jacking all of the iMac ideas, the GUI, the graphic user interfaces. And then this is uh, Gates shot back. And I, I got to give Gates some love there on this one. He goes, uh, when when Steve uh, said that Apple was getting their stuff stolen by Microsoft, this is what uh, Bill Gates said. Well, Steve, I think there's more than one way of looking at this. I think it's more like we both had a rich neighbor named Xerox and I broke into his house to steal the TV set and felt that you had already stolen it. Listen, no wonder the, no wonder Microsoft got hit, got slapped with a uh, antitrust lawsuit in the mid-90s. wasn't related necessarily to this. It was related to bundling and Netscape. But, I mean, these guys are out here just jacking Xerox Park technology, although jacking is probably not fair. And to, to be fair to both of them, Xerox Park just totally shit the bed, right? Xerox, the company, just totally shit the bed. They gave this stuff away. That's not on Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. So, as I kind of mentioned, uh, the demo is the demo is the, the deciding function within Apple. So, Enri, they had this multi-touch functionality, which they acquired from Fingerworks. Uh, and they're just like, okay, if this is going to go anywhere, get this product, this demo, to Steve Jobs. And the way it happened, and there's a great, great quote here by, by Joni I mentioned, and this up front about Joni saying that, uh, Steve Jobs is known to shit on stuff. So Joni saw what Johnny, if I'm rooting Joni, Johnny, apologies, uh, 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 Johnny Ive, they, they saw what was going on in Henry. And uh, uh, Ive says, because Steve is so quick to give an opinion, I didn't show him stuff in front of other people. He might say, this is shit and snuff the idea. I feel that ideas are very fragile. You have to be tender when you're in development. I realized that if he pissed on it, it would be so sad because I knew it was so important. So again, this is really, we mentioned up top when uh, uh, Johnny Ive was at Steve's funeral. He was saying that Steve understood how fragile ideas are, but he was still capable of shitting on them. So basically, as within Apple, you demo to, so Steve has Inner Circle uh, at the time. It's the guys like Tony Fidel, uh, Hardware, uh, Scott Forstall, uh, Software, uh, Tim Cook, obviously the CEO now, was on the supply chain, and, and Johnny Ive, uh, head of industrial design slash soulmate. Uh, that'd be pretty cool on LinkedIn, right? Head of international design slash Steve soulmate. Um, so I've wanted to make sure that they could get something to Steve that was presentable. And uh, I'll tell you something funny. And Brian mentions in this part of the book was basically like many years later when iPhone's a hit, uh, Steve basically took credit for creating multi-touch. And this is just an example of showing that it didn't necessarily come from him. He may have greenlit it. He may have nurtured it through uh, uh, his running of Apple. It was, it was a total, I mean, he was a monarch. It was a, he ran it. He was the ultimate decider. Uh, and this is what Steve wrote. We have invented a new technology called multi-touch, which is phenomenal. Oh, this is from the keynote. It works like magic. You don't need a stylus. It's far more accurate than any touch display that's ever been shipped. It ignores unintended touches. It's super smart. You can do multi-finger gestures on it, and boy, did we patent it. That's actually a good zinger. If you rewatch that, when he drops the patent line, the, the Apple nerds lose their mind. Oh, Steve, amazing. You patented man. Oh, man. How many patents do you have on it? It's like 200 patents. But um, re really, really kind of hits home on like the ownership level. Uh, so Brian says here in the book that a lot of Apple employees were not crazy about it. And Steve took ownership over the multi-touch. Uh, I'm not going to name names. You can read the book. Uh, and to be honest, I didn't even write the names down. Uh, and so so I've, Ive's instinct that Steve wouldn't like the multi-touch was hands-on. So so, so Ive brings the multi-touch 
a demo of the multi-touch to Steve. And to be fair, the multi-touch was like, so this is a description of it. It was a table side contraption with a projector pointed it at a white piece of paper. So I don't even know what that looks like. I think the projector is up on the ceiling and it's shooting down on a white piece of paper and they're kind of fiddling around it to show what a what a future multi-touch screen might look like. I pro Fair enough. That's very shit onable. So this is what a merchant writes, uh, 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 communicating Ive. He was completely unimpressed, Ive said. He didn't see that there was any value to the idea. And I felt really stupid because I perceived it to be a very big thing. I said, well, for example, imagine the back of a digital camera. Uh, this is what Steve said. Why would they have a small screen and all those buttons? Why couldn't it all be on the display? That was the first application I could think of on the spot, which is a great example how early this was. Uh, still, he was very dismissive. Oh, sorry. So uh, uh, Ive is saying about the camera, which obviously ends up happening. And Steve was still very dismissive. So, but this is where we're getting to. This is why Steve is a decider. And this is why Steve Jobs is Steve Jobs, arguably the greatest entrepreneur ever. So according to Ive, Jobs spent the next few days thinking it over and evidently changed his mind. Soon, in fact, he decided that he loved multi-touch. Later, as we saw, uh, uh, he would pro publicly announce that Apple invented it. So Apple didn't invent multi-touch. Uh, there's uh, Sony actually had a paper out and... I'll touch on it now because it's somewhere down here in his nose. I don't want to lose my train of thought. But a lot of the Apple employees were working off kind of Sony research. And then Apple's legal team's like, oh, you might want to pump the brakes there. I think uh, if it's too obvious that we're working off Sony, uh, there might be some trademark or patent infringement going on. So uh, anyways, yeah, you guys will laugh. So I got these notes from Kindle. I think it over-highlighted. So it says here, some heights have been hidden or truncated due to export limits. I think they put that in there so you just can't copy and paste the entire book. I appreciate that, all right? So um, back to uh, Henry and multi-touch. Steve changes his mind. And he actually does this a few times uh, uh, over the course of development iPhone, and I'm sure many times over the course of development of his career. So uh, what I've uh, underlined here is a, a project was greenlit to translate the fragments, ideas, and ambitions of Henry, uh, the Henry experiment into a product. The hardware had to transform the rig into a working prototype so this is interesting and i'm gonna move forward here a bit uh as i mentioned uh, I, i'm gonna reiterate this line because it's hilarious apple's first marketing pitch for multi-touch like this is what like steve green lit it and then the marketing department's like okay now we gotta come up with ideas but this is why apple is a product first company like truly this is why uh, uh i've second uh was the second most powerful person under jobs in the 2000s it's because their design first. Designers ran that company uh, under Jobs, uh, second uh, uh, go around. So the marketing department, this is why you don't go to marketing to, to, to break through this technology, right? You gotta let designers figure out, which they obviously did. But Apple marketing department looked at the multi-touch and they're like, oh, well, Merchant writes here. They put together a presentation to show how they could position the tablet to sell to real estate agents who could use it to show images of homes to clients. Sorry, I just burped there. I was like, oh my God, this is so off the mark. Uh, that's uh, an individual Apple named Strickton. So shout out. Uh, I didn't have your first name here, unfortunately. I apologize for that. Um, so there we go. Uh, the funny thing about this, remember how we said that it was uh, extremely secretive? I mean, secrecy was part of Jobs' second go around Apple too. So when we go to the making of the iPhone, the I'm gonna say because before I forget it, but basically people just started disappearing within the company. 
If you guys ever seen the show The Leftovers, half the world, I think 80% of the world just disappears one day. Like, it's pretty dark. It's like an end of time show. But like, this is literally, when I was reading Brian Merchant's book, One Device, this is what it felt like when I was reading it. It's like, people just started disappearing from chairs. Like, imagine you sat next to some guy named Jim, and then one day you go there, and Jim's gone, Sharon's gone, and you just have no idea where they've gone. No one knows. Like, Steve empowered, once he greenlit the iPhone project, his inner circle working on that, they could take anyone they want, and that was it. That was the end of the game. So the multi-touch then, obviously the real estate uh, uh, agents was not going to be the answer for multi-touch. Uh, no, no, not trying to dog real estate agents. I'm sure they use lots of iPads now, but that wasn't like the total addressable market that uh, that Steve wanted to to launch. And something to worth noting here is uh, Steve did come back and Apple did turn around their business in the mid 90s or near bankruptcy. Uh, and, and when Steve came back to the iMac and the iPod, back-to-back winners. But actually 2003 was the first year, I believe they lost money in 2003. So it's two years after the iPod. Um, and then on the eve of the iPhone coming out, so the announcement's in January 2007, the actual product is in June uh, 2006, uh, it was shipped June 2007. I believe that year, the prior year, uh, iPod and iTunes sales, so like the 99 cent song or whatever, the $10 album, I forget what it was, made up like 50% of Apple's revenue. And there's actually a real, there was like a true threat to Apple's business. And it was like, these phones... Well, ultimately, the smartphones were all going to converge towards the iPod, right? This is the other part that they saw coming and why the iPhone ended up being the choice that Steve did with multi-touch and, and something he pursued. Because, remember, half of Apple's business is the iPod and iTunes. But if you're like BlackBerry, you could throw music on there. If you're Nokia, you throw music on there, right? And remember, BlackBerry is the beast in this space. Uh, uh, we're going to have to go through an entire episode of how they built it to that point and the ultimate failure. But... You can see how the threat of a smartphone, not even multi-touch, but even with a keyboard on it, could potentially take out Apple's core business because people don't want two things in their pocket. I mean, Steve talks about it in the 2007 iPhone uh, initial announcement. He's like, we know a lot of people have two things in their pocket. So it was inevitable that they would converge. So Apple actually tried to head off the, the threat of the convergence of uh, MP3 players and phones. So they did a phone uh, a collaboration with Razer in 2005. So I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but this is the order of it. Just just know that the multi-touch project has come to Steve. He tried to snuff it out a bit or was unimpressed, but then he was cool. Let's find a, a, a market for it. So Apple's separate phone project was with Motorola. Uh, I, I have a writing here. The new CEO of uh, Motorola, Ed Zander, was friendly with Jobs. Uh, Jobs liked the Razer phone's design. Man, remember the Razers? Those dope, like super thin. Jobs thought that Apple and Motorola could collaborate. So this is the logic of the deal. I got a pretty big chunk of text here, but I want to give you an idea of how important it was that uh, they tried to do this and it ended up being a massive failure. But the problem with the phone, Steve Jobs said in 2005, is that we're not very good going through offices to get to the end user. So Apple wants a direct relationship. By orifices, he meant carriers like Verizon, AT&T, which had final say over which phones could access their networks. Carriers now have gained the upper hand in terms of power of the relationship with the handset manufacturers, Steve continued. So the handset manufacturers are really getting these big, thick books from the carriers telling them, what here's what your phone can do. Obviously, and Steve actually learned a lot of this through working with Motorola and Singular, he learned that the carriers had all this power and Steve's like, okay, 
well, we need to find a market for multi-touch. Uh, we could do the phone market because it's massive. Uh, I think the year the iPhone came out, this a billion phones worldwide were sold. And uh, yeah, and, and his presentation is like, we're trying to capture 1% of the market, which is 10 million units uh, of the iPhone. But essentially, the people that were controlling that were the carriers. Steve's like, this is, this is unacceptable, right? And it's like, you, you're going to let AT&T or Verizon tell you how to design a phone, right? Steve's already shitting over everybody on these like, some of the best. He, he's got the Lennon McCartney of UI. And they're not doing good enough. You think whatever Verizon or AT and T is going to throw is going to be sufficient? Like Lennon and McCartney. Yeah, I think you got the best UI guys already. So it's interesting. The the uh, the iPod phone, which is what the collaboration ended up being with Motorola, uh, literally was just an iPod player inside the Razor. Uh, it was a failure. Uh, but Steve did it as a way to kind of cut off or beat somebody to having this combination. But this was the takeaway, and he learned a ton. Steve was gathering information during these meetings with Motorola and Singular. He was trying to figure out how he might pursue a deal that would let Apple retain control over the design of its phone. He considered having Apple buy its own bandwidth and become its own mobile virtual network operator. An executive at Singular, which was owned by AT&T, meanwhile, began to cobble together uh, an idea uh, of maybe letting Apple do whatever they want, but Singular was exclusive. And so obviously this idea of like, uh, getting a phone for two-year plan with any uh, with one provider uh, has become the mainstay, and BlackBerry was already doing this. But the point is, Steve wanted full control of the iPhone uh, uh, or any phone he was to make. It wasn't even necessarily going to be the iPhone or the multi-touch that we know today. Uh, but the orifices that he said earlier—that's a we actually think about orifices. It's quite a visual word, right? It's like uh, you know those chum boxes at the end of like ESPN or CNN.com. And they're like, oh, the most frightening visuals in the world are these give you the goosebumps. Like, that's what I see when I see orifices, just holes. Uh, I know there's some, like, psychological stuff, but and no wonder he described the, the uh, these carriers as orifices uh, uh, towards the customers. So I mentioned uh, that uh, this is the part of the book uh, where uh, people just start disappearing. And uh, he did it for secrecy reasons. I think Steve was particularly secretive after... Uh, uh, his second go round because of what happened, uh, he got booted uh, in the mid '80s. So I think he took it quite seriously. And uh, here's Scott Forstall, um, um, Brian Merchant's relaying uh, Scott Forstall, who did the iOS. Uh, this is what he said. He said, uh, "Steve didn't want for secret reasons for me to hire anyone outside of Apple to work on the user interface." Okay, so there you go. That's why people were getting poached, right? Steve didn't want anything outside of Apple. Uh, uh, but Steve told me I could have moved anyone in the company into his team uh, or into my team. And so this is how Scott Forstall would go to uh, Apple employees. Uh, he would just go up front to an Apple and say, we're starting a new project. It's so secret. I can't tell you what the new project is. I cannot tell you who you will work for. What I can tell you is if you choose to accept it, uh, it will be like game changing for Apple. And this is like uh, mission critical. And uh, apparently some of the best people did sign up for it. Uh, but unfortunately, there was side effects. I mean, I read this. So from the time that Apple uh, greenlights it, so Steve greenlights it in November 2004. So this is like, I believe this is a couple of years after Henry started looking at, uh, the Henry groups are looking at multi-touch, but he greenlights it. And I mean, this is unfortunate, right? So this is the quote. It led to a lot of divorces. Like you're working 18 hours a day at Apple headquarters and you can't tell your significant other what you're doing there's going to be some collateral damage. So this is a quote uh, uh, from uh, uh, Andy Grinion, uh, um, I believe who's an employee. He says, 
yeah, the iPhone ruined uh, more than a few marriages. It was really intense, probably professionally one of the worst times of my life uh, because you created a pressure cooker of a bunch of really smart people with an impossible deadline and impossible mission. And then you hear the future of the entire company is on it. It was a soup of misery. So that's how he explained it. Uh, I want to do a little bit of jumping here uh, because the next part of the idea, uh, you know, this little podcast book, how ideas come to life. And I think this is a pretty interesting example of uh, uh, of Steve Jobs pitting two teams within Apple to create what would become the iPhone. So uh, I will add, okay, so we'll go here. I got my phone ringing, so don't mind me. Uh, I probably should put that one on uh, airplane mode, but that's fine. So we'll go to November 7th, 2004. Uh, this is when uh, one of the Apple employees uh, working on the multi-touch, and his last name is Bell. Bell sent Jobs a late night email. Steve, I know you don't want to do a phone. So remember, Steve didn't even want to do a phone multi-touch. He didn't see the true potential of it, or he thought that the carriers were too big of a risk. Uh, but uh, Bell writes, but here's why we should do it. Uh, Johnny Ive has some really cool designs for future iPods that no one has seen. We have to take one of those, put some Apple software around it, and make a phone out of it ourselves instead of putting our stuff on other people's phones, which they would eventually do with the Razer phone. And uh, Jobs called Bell back right away. They argued for hours, pushing back and forth. So again, like Jobs was not sold on the phone opportunity. I cannot stress this enough. The greatest consumer product ever almost got snuffed out a number of times. So uh, uh, according to Brian Merchant, the author of the book, uh, Bell detailed uh, what would happen if uh, mobile phones and iPods came together. That would put uh, uh, Apple at serious risk. And then after many hours, Steve just goes, okay, I think we should do it. So uh, Bell writes, Steve, I, and Johnny, and another employee had lunch three or four days later, and we started the iPhone project. So this is the second week of November 2004, the phone would come out, officially come out, uh, two and a half years later in the summer of 2007. So think about all the work that that multi-touch group had done. Uh, remember, they 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 don't get top billing like uh, uh, Johnny Ive and the industrial design group, even though they have the Lennon and McCartney, right? The Lennon and McCartney of UI. I wonder who the Ringo of that UI group was, but uh, so Steve. Uh, puts uh, the iPhone, uh, the future iPhone on the table. He says, I want to make this happen. And we mentioned with the employees getting divorced, this is when the pressure cooker happens. So they green light it in December of 2004. By February, and this is the thing with the demos, and we've seen it all with uh, Jobs' famous uh, presentations. He wants a narrative. He wants a story. So they got to come in now, all the, the UI designers, the software, the, the hardware team, they have to bring a story. It can't just be enough. It's like, oh, you can use multi-touch to pinch, zoom in and out. Steve's like, okay, why do I care? What is the story? How was the human element of that? So they had to put together oral pressure cooker, uh, a demo for within Apple. There's like a group, uh, Steve presents this at Top 100 meeting. The Top 100 employees all got together. Could you imagine being the 100 employee? <laughs> All your buddies are rolling in there. It's like, hey, sorry, man. 101, you're not going to come in. Uh, not, not this year. So uh, Steve eventually decides uh, that the demo was good enough. They got a demo. And this is where it gets interesting. So they had a bake-off internally uh, to decide uh, what type of phone was going to be made. There was two teams. There was the iPod team. So this is Tony Fidel, the pod father. 
Tony Fidel actually uh, has, a, has a book too about his experience at Apple. Uh, I'll probably end up covering that and maybe look at the iPod, how that idea came to life. But uh, similarly, listen, with all these individuals, there's always a mixed bag in the sense of a lot of people don't like Tony Fidel. And this is what Brian Merchant is communicating. Some people said his nickname was Tony Baloney. You can't believe everything that Tony says. Uh, maybe he took all the credit, just like Steve did with multi-touch. But um, uh, Tony had earned Steve's ear. So I'll, I'll tell you something Tony Fidel did uh, with Steve Jobs regarding the iPod. So let's just grant that Tony was a head of hardware, was re responsible for at least a large portion of the iPod being shipped and becoming a massive success. But one part that he did with Steve, and this is so important because Steve had an inner circle. And again, Steve's snuffing out ideas. With the iPod, uh, Steve did not want a Windows iTunes software. Makes sense. Steve, Steve has said famously that the problem with Bill Gates is he has no taste. So how can Steve trust to put a Windows product, uh, a, a, an Apple product with Windows? Obviously, they had a deal in 97, like Microsoft, uh, uh, what Phil to mention, it's not super important to the story, but when, when Steve Jobs returned to Apple, they had some money problems, but they got an investment from Microsoft, and Microsoft uh, uh, promised to let uh, an Office version for Mac. So, I mean, these guys cooperate, but uh, yeah. the idea of like letting iTunes uh, go onto Windows, it took Tony Fidel to convince Steve to do that. And actually, the iPod didn't become really successful until that happened. So, since they're two years after the iPhone, so we're talking about 2003, that Windows uh, had this iTunes software, so you could use an iPod, obviously much bigger PC market at that time uh, than uh, uh, Mac. So blew up the total adjustment market. So that's Tony Fidel's relationship with Steve. And then the other part, uh, they call him, uh, the individual I mentioned, Scott Forstall. So Scott worked with Steve at Next, and he was responsible for the Mac, uh, the uh, desktop, the laptop uh, operating system. And so they wanted uh, Tony Fidel, been the pod father great great nickname by the way although i've heard bill simmons like podcast call himself the pod father i'm gonna have to give pod father title to tony fidel here uh, even though some people call him tony baloney i'm going with the pod father all right tony if you're listening to this i'm with you on the pod father scott forstall they call him mini steve so his reputation from what i gather is like very well liked by his own team like like he's a general that people want to go to war with. But I guess for the same reason that, uh, you know, when you're this successful and, and run these type of cutthroat operations and organizations, a lot of people are going to dislike you. So uh, this is uh, Brian Merchant here writing, there are two options for the iPhone plan uh, uh, that was to move forward. You take the beloved, widely recognizable iPod and hack it to doubles a phone. This was an easier path and Jobs uh, wasn't, I remember at this point, he thought the killer app was a phone. So Jobs wasn't envisioning a mobile computing device. That's not what he thought about with the phone, where, where it would come now with us, where it does everything. He's like, okay, maybe we'll just do that. The other one was to transmorgify a Mac, so the desktop, into a tiny touch tablet. So that would be using the multi-touch, and that was under the purview of, uh, of Scott Forstall. So the entire project was called Project Purple. Uh, so from the Burke Merchant Rights, they put a sign uh, that said Fight Club, this is outside of uh, the Project Purple. This is the Appleform project. Outside of the room, they had the Fight Club sign because obviously everybody knows the first two Fight Clubs. Rule number one, don't talk about Fight Club. Rule number two, don't talk about Fight Club. So that was a Project Purple thing. I don't I don't know if they saw the rest of that movie. It's pretty dark. But, uh, but anyways, there you go. So 
I'm going to rip off a, a couple of number interesting parts here. So Steve really, really wanted the iPod turn into a phone. I don't know if it was because he loved the iPod. I mean, part of this is like you have a successful product. You have that mind share. Uh, I'm going to talk about this in the future, but it's the idea of like you combine novelty, uh, uh, both familiarity, right? So this is evolutionary. You want familiarity because people want comfort. You want novelty because people are also curious. So uh, Virgil Abloh, uh, uh, off-white label uh, uh, owner, uh, uh, founder, uh, previous uh, menswear head at Louis Vuitton. Rest in peace. He passed away, unfortunately, in, in 2021. But he had what was called a 3% rule, whereby he thought new product development should be done by taking something that already exists with a lot of mind share. And it's already kind of perfect. He took Nikes, which he said were already so perfectly and beautifully put together. I just want to give a little twist to it. So I think in a way, Steve is thinking about the, the, the Apple phone, not as this all-in-one supercomputing device, which it becomes. And, and remember, he thought the killer app was the phone call because Steve hated dropped phone calls. There's a quote in here that I'm going to find. You guys will shit yourself when I read it. It's like Steve just lost it when he dropped the phone call. So he's just like, we're just going to make a better phone. But the point that I'm trying to bring up is Steve really wanted the iPod. And the 3% rule here is like, listen, you have this super successful product. Uh, you go to market with it, people will get it immediately. I mean, that was like from the initial, you know, it's an internet communicator, it's an iPod, it's a phone, right? All in one. It's like, could you want to live off the meme that already exists from the original product? So uh, a couple of lines here, we'll talk about the iPod version of this phone. Remember, there's two teams here. A P1 was called the iPod team, and P2 was the experimental hybrid touch team. And then P probably stands for Project Purple. So... Uh, Bass Ording, remember, Lennon or McCartney, I don't know which one he is, Lennon or McCartney, he's one of them. He says, Steve called a big meeting in the boardroom. Everybody was there. Phil Schiller, who's head of marketing at Apple, uh, and, jo and Johnny Ive and whoever. Steve said, listen, we're going to change plans. We're going to do this iPod-based thing, make it into a phone. That's because that's a more doable project. So he kind of pivoted from the multi-touch angle. Uh, and he goes, it's more predictable. That sounds like to me, you know, there's less business risk because they're like, listen, we know we can ship this. The pod father is telling Jobs he can ship this, right? He's done it already. So uh, that was Tony Fidel's project. So the touchscreen effort wasn't abandoned, but while the engineers worked on whipping it into shape, Jobs directed Ording, Chaudhry, and the members of the UI team, so that's the Henry team, to design an interface uh, for an iPod phone, a way to dial numbers, select context, and browse the web using that device's tried and true click wheel the iPod click wheel. So we took the Enry team and like, guys, pause on the multi-touch, see if we can make this iPod happen. But thankfully it didn't happen uh, for us. And this is uh, this is how it goes down. Uh, in the notes here, I have Rotary is so dumb. But I was read what Brian a Merchant wrote, the author of the book. After we made the first iteration of the software, it was clear that this was going nowhere, Fidel says, because of the wheel interface. It was never going to work because you don't want a rotary dial on the phone. The design team tried mightily to hack together a solution. I came up with some ideas for the predictive typing. So I mentioned the book Creative Selection from uh, Ken Cacienda, uh, who worked at Apple. He he did the autocorrect. So predictive typing becomes a big deal, but it did not work with the rotary phone. So you actually, if you watched that uh, January 2007 presentation, Introduction to the iPhone, Steve actually shows the iPod phone, which is literally the rotary. They turn into a phone. He jokes, oh, I'm just joking. It was not a joke. If you're seriously considering it. Uh, but then uh, Brian uh, Merchant also continues, there would be an alphabet laid out at the bottom of the screen and users would use a wheel to select letters. And then you can just like click, 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 click his words. I mean, that was just not going to work. 
Apple would be owned by Microsoft if they shipped that product. I tell you that right now. They, they would not have sold uh, 2 billion units of the rotary iPhone. So uh, I, the next note I have here from the book is Steve realized there's a failure. So here's an excerpt from the book. We tried everything, Fidel says, and nothing came out to make it work. Steve kept pushing and pushing, and we were like, Steve. But then he kept pushing it, and we kept pushing it the hill. Uh, and then uh, Fidel says, let's put it this way. I think Steve knew. I could tell in his eyes that he knew he just wanted it to work. He just kept beating the dead horse. And then uh, Fidel relays this uh, from Steve. Steve kept saying, come on, there's got to be a way. He just did not want to give up. He pushed until there's nothing there. So I cannot stress this enough. This is why I think this is the perfect story and book for my idea for this podcast because ideas are freaking hard and to bring them into the world. We're talking about the most successful consumer product ever. Look how much just the, the idea itself, how difficult it was to come out and how many roadblocks there were. And, and ideas are fragile, right? I mean, that's this is the place to start. This is the story to start because of what Steve and Johnny Ive have said about ideas, they are fragile. And then to nurture them, to bring them to life. Listen, if these products were done, there wouldn't be an idea. It'd be done. There is That's it. They're difficult. And we're seeing how difficult it was. So when they realized that P1 for the purple, uh, Project Purple, which is the phone project, wasn't going to go off, they obviously had to go multi-touch. So uh, Scott Forstall uh, wins out. Uh, Forstall and, and Fidel, uh, I think, uh, had some serious beef. But I'll, I'll tell you the funny thing. So Scott Schiller... The Apple's marketing guy. Uh, I still think I have Apple marketing, actually. Um, depends. Oh, this is getting released. I was supposed to leave this evergreen, so let's just say at the time he's Apple's head of marketing. Uh, I know he still is right now, but I want I don't want to date this, all right, people? Every Everything I'm seeing about evergreen says don't date your podcast, but I might have just done it. Okay, so this is what I want to say, and this killed me. So remember, P1 was the iPod. Make that a phone. P2 was the multi-touch screen, which we... No, as iPod, as the iPhone one. Phil Schiller, the marketing guy, kept going into every meeting. And remember when we we're talking marketing, and I'm not dogging Apple's marketing. They're incredible, obviously. But remember, they wanted to do the real estate agents first. Phil Schiller kept on going to these meetings and saying, I want the BlackBerry physical keyboard. So he's coming out of left field with a third option. Nobody wants to hear it. There is no P3, but Phil Schiller is making a P3 in his head. And one meeting, Steve fucking kicks Phil out. And this is, it's hilarious. I'm going to read this. There was one spectacular meeting where we're finally going in a direction, Tony Fidel says. And Phil erupted. We're making the wrong decision. Steve just looks at Phil and goes, I'm sick and tired of this stuff. Can we get off of this? This referring to the physical keyboard. And, and Steve throws... Phil Schiller out of the meeting. I mean, that just killed me. And then uh, and then eventually Steve just points at the touchscreen. It's like, okay, we're going to do that. Like, we're not doing the, the pod, uh, iPod phone. I tried. Phil Schiller can go kick rocks. Like, he's banned from this meeting. We're giving him a one-week ban from not stopping to shut up about Nokia and BlackBerry uh, uh, keyboards. So uh, they described it as a next mafia. So this is the P2 team. Then we're going to shrink the Mac OS, and, uh, OS into a phone. So uh, another point that was kind of a, a, a beef was that the iPod team wanted to do Linux, the open source uh, operating system. Uh, P2 saw the phone. So they're actually very forward looking. So uh, they called the Next Mafia because Scott Forstall worked with Steve Jobs at Next, the uh, computer, the hardware software company that was acquired by Apple to bring Steve back. So he had worked with Steve. 
in the 90s and next. So this team now, uh, headed, by, headed by Scott Forstall, saw that the P2, their, their project was an opportunity to bring to create a true mobile operating system. And uh, something that really, so the note I, I have here is that the uh, operating system went out because of the scrolling. So when they were, like, the thing that really blew away the team, and even now, like, think about it, like how normal this sounds to us, right? Was that when you touch the screen, it tracked really well, but then you could scroll up and down, you're flipping. And actually, if you rewatch that presentation, like Steve is kind of blown away by the flipping. Uh, small segue, a story about uh, that January 2007 introduction iPhone a meeting was like, it was, the phone was not ready. And even during the presentation, Steve said that they were doing the presentation in January and shipping in June because they basically want to get ahead of the FCC. Like, like we're doing this, we got to deal with this and make it public and then we can go through all the regulatory stuff. Uh, I'm sure that was already the worst way he said it. But that 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 presentation, so Steve had an iPhone like on a, uh, on a dais and it was connected to the big screen. And uh, he did a bunch of things. Like he, he called uh, Johnny Ive and then he like, uh, he brought in like Phil Schiller in like three-way call. Remember, the calling was a killer app. And then uh, and then they had it all on the screen. But apparently, the phone, the iPhone, uh, the software could, was only working like you had to do things in the exact order. Like if Steve checked the email and then looked at the iPod player on the phone, it was like crash. It's something of that nature. And they did, so they're partnering with AT&T on the, the wireless stuff. They asked AT&T to bring like one of the small cellular towers within the uh, the dorm where the presentation is taking place because they couldn't trust the Wi-Fi uh, or connectivity on the phone. And the other thing that they hacked, which is pretty hilarious looking back, these are, I believe, what you call white lies. They're not full lies, but like, no matter what the connectivity was on the iPhone for the presentation, the demo, they hacked it so it always showed like max bars, which is actually, you know, like max connectivity bars, which is, which is hilarious. I'm not going to call that lying, but it's a white lie. It's a white lie, all right? Okay, so um, we're going to talk about the scrolling was a big hit. And so here we go. So Scott Forstall was on the uh, operating system uh, for the phone, and then Fidel did the hardware. Uh, uh, so the big thing then becomes, okay, they're doing touchscreen. And this is I mean, this is key in the presentation. And uh, it's in the, for the first 10 minutes of Steve Jobs' iPhone presentation, uh, the introduction in January was, it was about the keyboard. He said the big problem with the existing smartphones like uh, the most popular ones are the Blackberries or the Nokia's, is that the physical keyboard is there no, no matter what, e even when you don't need it. Hilarious, obviously, because Phil Schiller probably still wants the physical keyboard. <laughs> we should somebody needs, Phil, if Phil Schiller or somebody that knows Phil Schiller is listening to this podcast, I need to know, do you still want the physical keyboard? Hilarious. So keyboard's a big deal. I should probably actually do an episode of the keyboard stuff, to be honest. Like we... Just know that they spent a lot of times, like uh, the functionality of the keyboard, uh, the autocorrect, how you touch it, like how sensitive it was, is a really big deal. Uh, the next part I have here is about the carriers. So I kind of mentioned Steve had identified uh, from the relationship with Motorola when they made the iPod phone that carriers was where a lot of the issues came up. So the, the Brian Merchant writes in the book that there's a couple of things that uh, Steve was ready to do. He said, okay. I will go exclusive to AT&T Singular. Uh, that was the group. We'll do the four gigabyte model at four ninety nine subsidized. That's ended up what happening. We want a couple of things though. We call the shots on the phone. You don't have much input. We want persistent Safari connection because the internet communicator is one of the three parts of the iPhone. So AT&T had to a little give or take. Listen, AT&T has benefited 
uh, uh, and any other carrier in the world that work with iPhone, if you're shipping 2 billion of these products, you're going to get, uh, that's some good customer acquisition right there. So now we can get a bit to like, I think we talked a bit about the iPhone getting to go, go to market. So now we know how the P1 and P2 teams came together and, and, and the decision-making and, and how to, Steve decided that this is the direction he wanted to go. So there are a couple of things that I want to mention about the app developers. Uh, the other part that Steve almost snuffed it out. So Steve really, really hated drop calls. And I got to find this line here because it is absolutely, oh yeah, here we go. So this is the reason Steve did not want third-party developers. The first iPhone shipped with, I think, 16 apps. And the 16 apps were a phone, mail, iPod, Safari. Those were the main ones. A text, calendar, photos, camera, YouTube, stocks, Google Maps, weather, clock, calculator, notes, and setting. Those were the main ones. Eventually, uh, people would jailbreak the phone. Kind of one of the famous hackers is uh, George Holtz, Geohot. Uh, he, 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 Joe broke the iPhone, I think, in 2007, one of the first ones. And they started doing new apps um, and, and new features. So like the uh, notification center, that was actually first done by jailbreakers. But um, so I bring this up because, again, the iPhone we know today, which the App Store has become a total monopoly, and has, has paid out, I think, $100 billion to developers, right? Become a total mini economy. Steve didn't want it. And, and, and I'll relay this story to you about how much he hated drop calls. So here's the story. Uh, Steve would go from calm to really pissed because phones crashed or dropped his call, and he found it unacceptable. His no cure or whatever, it was that he was using at the time. If it crashed on him, the chances were more likely that he'd fling and smash it and uh, this is an Apple employee. I, I lost track of who here. Maybe Brett uh, Bilbrey. I saw Steve throw phones. He got very upset at phones. The reason he did not want developer apps on his phone is he did not want his phone crashing. But this goes back to what we talked about, the iPod, and how he didn't want Windows, the uh, Windows iTunes. Uh, so the addressable market for your phone is a lot smaller without apps, right? And uh, I think it, what they, the kind of the middle ground they did in 2007 was... It was Apple went to uh, the developers like, hey, you can make like Safari tools or you can make things within the Safari browser. And then there's that literally a line here. One of the developers wrote, you can eat a dick. We want to write real apps. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, so the developers were getting kind of pissed. Uh, and then eventually uh, Steve relented just the same way he relented on the uh, iPhones, uh, iPod, Windows, uh, iTunes software. So Scott Forstall in this case is the one that convinced Steve about the apps. So Steve hated job calls. He was really worried what would happen if uh, there's a job call on like a 911 call. Totally fair. So Scott Forstall doing the software is like, Steve, I promise you. I promise you that we will create it so we will ring fence apps. They will not crash the phone. So, well, actually the number I have in here. So App Store developers have made $200 billion since uh, 2008. Remember, 70 to 80% of that is video game, which is kind of crazy. So the next part of the book uh, is uh, more, this is more like nitty gritty about the iPhone stuff. I think uh, you'll enjoy some of these. But uh, so as they're developing the phone, this is more product stuff, is uh, one of the uh, UIT members, Ganatra was his last name, uh, said that the phone had to have three things. You build trust with technology, right? So we talk about Apple, human, computer symbiosis. You have to build trust 
with the end user. This probably is applicable to any product we're going to talk on the show, right? Any any consumer product, anyways. You have to build trust with the end user, and the way they build trust was uh, that the home button, which is on the first uh, iPhone, it always takes you home. So you know that that's that's some comfort right there, right? We talk about the familiarity and novelty. Number two is that everything had to respond instantly to a person's touch. So you touch the screen, it had to come on. And, uh, and and you touch a uh, touch an icon, it had to work. And everything has to run at 60 frames per second so it doesn't jag. You know the idea of like, uh, that's why in VR, you want a VR helmet and it, it's a little bit off in timing, it'll make you puke, right? It's for that reason. So I'll tell you something interesting that uh, they worked on here, just to give a, a, a serendipity and how much Apple relied on this kind of human computer interactivity is the idea of like, okay, your phone always has to be on, but we don't want to drain the battery. So what we know it as uh, today, it becomes the slide button. Whereas like if it's in your pocket, it's on, but the whole screen doesn't light up and, and, is, uh, and, and it's as if somebody's using it, unless you click it and then you slide it open. And the way they came up with that actually was that the one of the team members brought the phone home, was trying to figure out ways to like, okay, how do I lock this screen, but also have it on at all times, like for calls. And he had his kid, his kid figured it out. Like he, he offered it up, did the slide. And then his kid was like, oh, that's intuitive. And now we all know this. The, the, one of the craziest things with Apple products is, man, I have my kid and knew how to knew that I use an iPad at two years old. I, I don't know if that's good for society. I'm just saying that's my personal experience. So the next part uh, that I have in the notes here, uh, we're kind of getting to the end, is um, we talked about how there's many different technologies that converged. Uh, we talked about uh, the ARM uh, design for some uh, for mobile chips. We talked about gyroscopes, GPS, cameras, compass, optical image stabilizers, uh, multi-touch, obviously. The only one that I want to tell specifically, I'm probably doing a whole episode on this one because this one, this is my favorite anecdote from the entire book. So we call it Gorilla Glass and we all know what it is, right? It's that glass on the iPhone, scratch resistant and kind of good. It, it, it really is tough to smash, but I've smashed half the... Is there anything worse than smashing your phone? I, actually, there is something worse than smashing your phone. I uh, have a, a, a MacBook Pro and I closed it one time and there was like the charging cord inside the MacBook Pro. It fucking cracked the screen. And I've been told apparently this happens a lot. And this is the crazy thing. It costs $1,000 to replace the screen. I might as well just buy a new laptop. Uh, I think this has to do with the right to repair movement and like Apple making it really hard to repair stuff. But that'll have to be like the angry idea episode of uh, of Apple products. Today, we're just talking about the iPhone. So I love this story. So here is the story that Brian Merchant conveys about Corning Glass. So one of the biggest glass companies in the world. I think they do 10 plus billion. They do all the iPhone products. Not going to lie. Are you begging that contract? Two billion iPhones sold? Not, not, not a bad business right there. So in the 1950s, uh, Corning, which makes glass, uh, the CEO, the president of Corning, Bill Decker, uh, went to uh, the head of research at the company. His name's Will Armistead. <laughs> and he goes, glass breaks. Why don't you fix that? You know, that sounds douchey, but it's a good point. So there are many ways to kind of make glass, quote unquote, stronger. You temper it, you layer it, you dip it in some of this, this sodium solution. I'm not going to get into that. Corning ended up creating a very strong glass. They called the glass Chemicore. Yeah, Chemcore. So in the 50s and 60s, they tried to take this really strong glass to market. Uh, a couple of places it went to, they tried to put it on phone booths. Phone booths were a thing. 
Think about the Tama phone booths. That's a McKinsey question for you right there. Eyeglass makers, uh, the windows for jails. That sounds like a pretty smart one. None of these really hit. And they, this one's this one's kind of crazy. They took it to automakers for the windshield, but the glass was so strong that during car crashes, people would like fly into these glasses, which is like steel, it's like aluminium uh, from Wolverine, and like really injure themselves. So that didn't work. Anyways, fast forward, and this is this is another kind of buzzword. I'll mention it here if you want to hear. It's like the long nose of technology. It's the idea. Uh, this is different from convergence. It's just the idea of some technologies are developed decades later. They're put into use, right? I think we don't even talk about technologies. Like any idea, ideas could bubble up. I mean, there's one thing in this book that Brian Merchant mentions. It's like if you actually talk about the iPhone, most of the technology in that phone, like uh, the main ones, like. Uh, 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 phone calls, internet, uh, photographs, uh, videos. Those were invented at the end of the 19th century. So these ideas take a long time to percolate, right? So I think uh, an idea about the idea podcast, uh, this podcast is always be searching. Uh, listen to this podcast, for example. Tell your friends about this podcast. Give me a five-star review or a one-star review. Just whatever is episode number one. Whatever you believe this is worthy of after one episode. But uh, use this as a resource uh, because ideas are everywhere and uh, they eventually converge. But this is an example of a long-nosed technology that takes a long time to get to market. So this is what happened with the iPhone. The first multi-touch phone, remember this happened within two and a half year window. Uh, one of the uh, Apple execs, uh, Steve was really upset because the plastic had scratches on it. And then the exec goes to Steve, uh, well, Steve, uh, we have uh, glass prototypes that don't scratch, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, survive the one meter drop test. So that's literally, as just imagine, they drop the phone a meter. You know those YouTube videos, those people like pretending to drop their phone down like elevator shafts? Imagine something like that. But uh, this is kind of Steve's uh, uh, reputation for being a bit of a, 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 a douche, right? Uh, I think that's a fair word, or being quite difficult to work with. Steve says to this exec about the, the glass, he goes, I didn't want to know if you're going to make the thing fucking work. That's it. That was the entire conversation. Uh, somebody sent uh, to me a few times the Bill Burr bit of Steve. Like Bill has this whole bit, the comedian of Steve just being a person that yells at like really smart engineers and scientists. Like, no, he just says one thing. He just yells, no. And this is like a pretty good example of that. Um, so here's what Tony Fidel said. We switched from plastic to glass at the very last minute, which, is, which was a curveball. There are just so many things like that. So this example obviously is also good for showing how uh, uh, a lot of last minute changes, two and a half years, uh, compressed timeline to bring the iPhone to life. Many times it was snuffed out. Uh, a lot of marriages apparently uh, were uh, put on ice, as mentioned in the book. So Jobs wanted glass, and uh, they, they, they tried plexiglass from the iPod that wasn't good enough, so they went to Corning. So this is uh, 2005. Corning had this Chemcore glass they made in the 50s, the glass that doesn't break, or as we found, does break, but it's quite hard. But when it does break, you want to cry. So this is the meeting and the thing that really stood out to me from the book. So Jobs gets a meeting with uh, Corning CEO Wendell Weeks. Jobs doubted Gorilla Glass. It's so funny. He wants glass. He goes to the top glass maker in the world. He's already doubting them. He doubted Gorilla Glass was good enough and began explaining to the CEO of the nation's top glass company how glass was made. So now we're actually the third person in this story that pushed back on Steve. You had Tony Fidel with the iTunes store and Windows. Then you had Scott Forstall with the app developers. That's later. This is not chronological because uh, now we're talking about Gorilla Glass. So this obviously has to come out before the iPhone does. So Wendell Weeks, the CEO of Corning, goes, can you shut up and let me teach you some science? 
What a great quote. Can you shut up and let me teach you some science? Jobs was sold, and, uh, and, and so Jobs was like, okay, cool. You know what? You scienced me. Like Matt Damon from The Martian, you scienced the shit out of me. You got me. But then Jobs is like, this MF ain't going to one-up me. Jobs turns around, and this is uh, from Brian Merchant. Recovering his Jobsian flair, uh, Steve ordered as much glass as Corden could make in a matter of months. We don't have the capacity, Weeks replied. None of our plants make glass now. Uh, so Weeks now is on is on a back foot. Like he taught Steve some science, but now he's backpedaling. Steve wants all the glass. So he goes, a Weeks protested that it would be impossible to order the scale. And Jobs, so Merchant, the author of The One Device, is communicating uh, Walter Isaacson's famous Steve Jobs biography. So this is what uh, Merchant writes. Don't be afraid, Jobs replied. Get your mind around it. You can do it. According to Isaacson, Weeks shook his head in astonishment as he recounted the story. We did it in under six months. We produced a glass that had never been made. So I think that's Steve's famous um, reality distortion field. So even for everything that Bill Burr joke uh, of uh, just yelling at scientists and engineers, do it for me now. It works. It looks like it worked. And not to defend it necessarily, but I think in this case, we just demonstrated with Wendell Weeks, Jobs just, I don't know if he whispered or sent it to him, I'm going to imagine he just looked at him because Jobs was famous for just, he did not blink when he looked at you. He just went, don't be afraid. Get your mind around it. You can do it. Just imagine that. So yeah, there we go. The uh, I had some other uh, things of note here. Uh, a couple, yeah, a couple items. Uh, I think I'll end there on kind of the story of uh, bringing the iPhone to market. Uh, Rewatch that, uh, that uh, the keynote. It's really good. Um, the iPhone, surprisingly, Remember, it took the app store for it to really blow up because uh, I think Brian Merchant talks about, you know, the killer app for the iPhone was kind of social media in that first phase and, and media in general. So like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and then you'd get the Ubers later. Uh, but the idea is like it became truly not just the phone's a killer app. It was an, it does everything, right? It's a computer in your pocket. So a couple of items I'd say about and that I have here that I didn't discuss uh, something about Foxconn, yeah. I mean, these are all, I might just do these ideas on the phone because Foxconn as an idea is pretty crazy if you think about it. ARM, ARM, which does the design for semiconductor mobile chips, that's definitely getting its own episode because it that has a crazy origin story. But a couple of things I have noted here is uh, uh, it's wild how they're able to do the iPhone. They had a, basically a startup within Apple and the, the team was small. So like, I think it was less than 30 people in the end. So here's a quote from the book. Uh, this is one of the things that Steve has done brilliantly, uh, uh, Williamson, so this is an Apple employee, says, the idea of building what really is a startup inside a larger company and insulating it from everything else that's going on in the company and giving them essentially infinite resources to do what they need to do. All told, between design and software engineering, there were, there were 20 to 25 people working on the iPhone in the early stages. Think about it, I forgot to mention this. The carry relationships were so important to Steve. So this is what he had identified as the uh, kind of the make or break for Apple can it be a big total addressable market and can we control the experience? There's one point where the number of people working with carriers was as big as the iPhone software team. So think about that. The other part I'd add to that was Steve Ballmer famously, and we'll mention him later when we do the awards. So every episode we'll do awards like the biggest winners, the biggest losers. Steve Ballmer famously said the iPhone would never succeed, never get market share. Uh, infamously wrong. One of the worst tech predictions ever. Granted, he was talking his own book. But many years later, Steve would say that he missed the iPhone because 
in his eyes, he didn't look at the business model innovation. So not the technology, not the multi-touch, right? It was a business model innovation. So there's an expensive luxury Apple phone subsidized by the carriers. The pushback being that, you know, this kind of deal is already done with the uh, Blackberries of the world. But um, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about Steve later a little bit. Um, so Steve wrote uh, about the iPhone. It was the most complex phone I've ever had. It was like being uh, the one evolving the variations of Sgt. Pepper, uh, the famous Beatles album. Uh, the real Lennon and McCartney. Not to take anything away from the Lennon and McCartney of UI. Uh, the other thing I'd say that I didn't know uh, after reading this book was Jobs is Mr. Keynote. And uh, a lot of people uh, will probably remember uh, the guy that took over for Steve Jobs in the mid-80s was John Scully, who was a big executive at Pepsi. And I think he might have even been CEO. I can't remember. But uh, Steve's pitch to John Scully in the mid-80s to come to Apple was, you know, do you want to change the world or do you want to sell sugar water? Which is a pretty good diss. It's not quite at the level of Bill Gates has no taste diss, but it's up there. Um, so apparently Scully who has a marketing background, uh, was the one that told uh, or taught Steve or, or or basically coached Steve or gave him an idea of really becoming Mr. Tino. So uh, I'll, I'll read this excerpt. Uh, Apple expert Leander Kenny says that Jobs keynotes were the product of CEO John Scully. A marketing expert, this is talking about Scully, he envisioned the product announcements as news theater, a show put on for the press. The idea was to stage an event that the media would treat as news, generating headlines for whatever product was introduced. News stories, of course, are the most valuable advertising there is. Scully thought that entertaining a crowd should be the priority, so product demos should be like staging a performance. This is what he wrote in his own autobiography called Odyssey. The way to mo motivate people is to get them interested in your product. Do entertain them and to turn them uh, a product into a full event. So, yeah, I think it worked, to be to be fully fair. So, let me see on any of the notes here. No, uh, no, that's everything. So the, I'll summarize kind of the main points before we get to the awards, which will be a bit of a riot. But again, why did I choose the one device? It's a good book. I, I highly recommend reading it. Uh, there are a lot of Apple and iPhone books. Uh, that's just the one I chose because I think it really nailed uh, what I'm trying to accomplish with the show. You know, ideas or conversation of previous ideas, the whole standing on shoulders of giants. Uh, inventions, whether that's a product, a, a film, a book, uh, I mean, called constitution, right? It's like bringing something from the brain into the world, something intangible to tangible, something conceptual that you can actually touch or truly feel. Uh, that's not the product of the individual, uh, only an individual. It's the product of teams and majority unsung. Remember what I asked at the beginning of the episode? If you ask the majority of people who invented the iPhone, they're going to say Steve Jobs, right? And you might get a couple percentage that they'll throw Johnny Ive in there. And then maybe some Tony Fidel, maybe some Podfather, maybe some Scott Forstall. But the reality is that the majority will say Steve Jobs. Uh, of the two billion ever sold, they didn't say Steve Jobs. Uh, but the truth is that there's a lot of people involved. And then the third part was, uh, and it comes directly from the quote, right? I'm just going to reread this quote that Johnny Ive had at Steve Jobs' funeral. As thoughts grew into ideas, however fragile, Steve recognized that this was hallowed ground. He had such a deep understanding and reverence for the creative process. He understood creating should be afforded rare respect, not only when the ideas were good or the circumstances convenient. Ideas are fragile. If they were resolved, they would not be ideas, they would be products. It takes determined effort not to be consumed by the problems of a new idea. Problems are easy to articulate and understand, and they take the oxygen. Steve focused on the actual idea, 
however partial or unlikely. I love that. So now we're going to get to the awards. You guys are going to like this. So you guys and gals, all right? So I'm going to do this every episode. This is a riff on uh, the Ringer does this with the rewatchable show, you know, kind of doing the rewards. So they have something called, uh, we'll start with saying, is this the apex uh, for the people involved? Apple. Uh, yes, it's definitely the apex. iPhone's the greatest consumer product ever. For Steve Jobs, 100% the apex. Uh, he passed away four years after the release of the iPhone. This is definitely his, actually, no, that's not fair. Apple is uh, a Steve's achievement. And uh, something we didn't really talk about was, uh, uh, we talked about Amazon, how they do the six-page memos and how Apple does the demos to kind of get ideas uh, to light and Steve as the ultimate decider. But Steve, uh, because they didn't have as much of a writing culture at Apple, I think a lot of it was just secrecy. Uh, Steve, what, what mattered to Steve was, uh, that's why he started Apple University. He tapped like the Dean of Yale School of Management to launch Apple University. It's a training facility uh, uh, at Apple. And uh, you learn stuff like Picasso's bowl that I talk about and kind of the Apple way. So the apex, I'd say, is for Apple. Uh, I think everybody else involved is definitely the apex. Uh, uh, Johnny I, Forstall, Fidel, the Podfather. The Podfather, apex isn't even the iPod. You got to give him the iPhone. So uh, what aged badly? Uh, I think uh, I kind of just thought about this one. What aged badly? Well, I think the, I, the, the phone being the killer app aged like not well. And that was the incorrect assessment. Um, it was quickly turned out that the, the app store and all the stuff that the imagination that was unleashed, that was built atop, uh, it, the killer app was not the phone. Um, what was the worst prediction or a notable prediction? Uh, if you actually Google a lot of the press at the time, they're quite skeptical. And to be fair, Apple actually had to do a price cut within, I think, three to four months after releasing the iPhone. Like they overcharged it. I think they gave a $100 coupon they might have slashed it by 20%, so maybe went from 499 to $399. I can't remember, but they ended up having to make good on a lot of people that bought early, like the super diehard fans. But uh, Steve Ballmer definitely made the most notable prediction, also the worst one. So was there a better name for the Apple iPhone? Uh, a small story here, but in, uh, there was another company, uh, Infosys. Uh, they had an iPhone. Linksys iPhone, was it called? It was just like a normal desktop, a desk phone and had some like internet stuff involved. I think Cisco ended up acquiring the company, but it was literally called the iPhone. So uh, before the iPhone announcement, uh, Apple floated some other name, uh, the Mobi, the Tripod, the Telepod, and they actually, the iPad was floated. Awful, awful names. Yeah, the iPhone ended up being good. There's a lawsuit. Uh, with Cisco, they ended up settling it a few months after the January 2007 announcement, uh, Steve Jobs' presentation. I think there's some deal like they were to integrate their technologies. I think Cisco lost out on this one. Uh, what could be fixed? If you were to redo this again, well, I mean, we talked about it. We'd be redoing the whole thing if they went with the rotary phone. I, mean, I tell you that right now. We'd be redoing everything. But uh, I think uh, the, the the developers should have been given the green light immediately. Uh, the biggest what if, just touch on it, if it was a rotating phone, whew, we're living in a different world right now, people. We're living in a very different world. Uh, BlackBerry would still be the biggest smartphone maker in the world. Uh, biggest loser from uh, the release of the iPhone. Um, BlackBerry, it's no question. The Although BlackBerry made a number of miscues, but it, they really shot themselves in the foot here. 
uh, by uh, 2016, BlackBerry stopped shipping new phones. Even by then, their market share was in single digits. They, they, they almost had 50% in the smartphone market. Granted, it was quite small. Remember, Steve opened up the total addressable market by quite a lot by being consumer first. So I'll actually list some things that BlackBerry did wrong. So very, they're enterprise. Uh, so I wrote here that they're focused on million of, and millions of enterprise customers. They lost out on the billions of potential consumers. Uh, they didn't actually open source uh, the BlackBerry Messenger. If you think about the fact that like WhatsApp was acquired for 19 billion in uh, 2014, like that's more than the entire the peak market cap that BlackBerry ever hit, right? They should have opened up a potentially Messenger instead of locking into the hardware. I don't know the the, the, the full logistics of that. So uh, Verizon, because they didn't have an iPhone, was begging BlackBerry for multi-touch. And then whenever BlackBerry did release it, it was already too late. And then BlackBerry uh, hitched their wagon uh, to uh, Flash. Uh, you may remember, and I'm sure a lot of listeners here remember that Steve Jobs hated Flash. It wasn't the right technology for mobile. Shut all over it. Oh, the biggest lesson is, uh, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I, I could just say what Brian Merchant kind of says, that a lot the top three things I've been mentioning, the convergence of technology, that a lot of great inventions, whether ideas, uh, books, uh, films, uh, consumer products, uh, electronics, uh, whatever you want to say, food, uh, it's often a lot of people ended up being involved, right? And uh, I think the main one, I'm going to it's a fragility of ideas. Um, the absolute biggest losers from this are, is our attention spans. <laughs> the same week that the iPhone came out, Netflix uh, released their streaming service. So that one week is like responsible for 100% of our wasted time. Uh, the biggest people, the biggest winners uh, is uh, people who like take a long dumps because uh, now they can really entertain themselves. And uh, the mobile screen, the internet communicator, the phone, the iPod, all in one. Are you getting it? Uh, that's it. That's it for this episode. Uh, I'll be back with more. I hope you enjoyed this and uh, really appreciate any reviews and pass it on to a friend if you if you want to spark some ideas for them. And I really appreciate uh, everyone giving this a listen. Thank you.